0: And Darlene keeping it in there. Darlene looking for an open man to Ristalinen. Over to Waiko. Back to Ristalinen. Over to Dalene with a shot. A rebound in front of the net. Eichel after it. Here's Skinner to his own score.
1: I begged the star of last week's podcast, Paula Bennett, to join me again today. But uh, she has other business. Uh, Watching my phone and mom spotted the bed while mom showers because she's pissed off that she didn't get a prize even though she pissed in the big girl potty. Now, my understanding of the rules were that she got a prize every time she Peter pooped in the potty or she got a sticker every time she sat on the potty. And she could get a prize if she filled up the sheet, but honestly, that's not my trip. So that's between her and Tammy. And the ruling was no prize, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get involved. Happy Thanksgiving! It is season eight, episode eighteen of the Sportscasters. It's Friday, about eight o'clock. I just got home from the Sabers game. Uh, the Sabers win their eighth game in a row. The Sabers haven't uh, had have 15 wins on the season. They didn't get their 15th win last season until mid February. Uh, so they're a little bit ahead of that pace. Uh, just a great scene and uh, atmosphere downtown. Uh, it's the longest winning streak the Sabres have had since they started 10-0 in the 2006-2007 season. And uh, if you remember what Buffalo was like around that time for the Sabres and Sabres hockey, uh, it's getting to that point again. It's getting to that point where... Tuesday nights, people are meeting out at bars to watch the games or going out by themselves. or It's appointment television. The ratings here have been insane. They did a 13-something rating on Wednesday night, 13.6 rating, uh, the highest-rated Sabres game ever on the NBC Sports Network. Uh, so they're just crushing it. Uh, they own the town. The bills suck, so it's kind of wide open for them, and uh, they've really taken advantage of that. Great Thanksgiving yesterday. I'm going to close the show today with one last thing, and uh, I'm going to put you at my dinner table, my Thanksgiving dinner table, and lay out everything I'm thankful for this year, Uh, and um, there's a lot to be thankful for, Uh, so we'll do that on one last thing. Also today, uh, of course, we're going to update the book club, as there's always many moving parts, and we have an exciting, uh, uh, fingers crossed Uh, that it happens. I I don't see why it won't, but we have an announcement in the book club, a pretty big one, so we'll talk about that. And guests, Brian Curtis from Ringer is going to join us, uh, at the second guest after the book club. And uh, Brian and I recorded uh, last week before Texas had somehow found their way into the Big 12 championship game. Uh, Oklahoma is kicking off now trying to find their way in. And we'll see if it's actually Oklahoma in the end who screws up an Oklahoma Texas rematch in the Big 12 Championship. Uh, I was poking fun in the interview with Brian a bit uh, that I was aggravated that Texas didn't finish the season to set it up. Uh, but because of West Virginia losing last week, it opened the door for Texas and they beat Kansas today. And they're in the uh, Big 12 Championship game. So just keep in mind that was recorded a little bit before that. Our first guest today is a big debut. And, you know, I feel like we haven't had a big debut like this in a while. You know, no offense to Scott Ryan or some of the other debuts we've had recently, but John Feinstein, the author of the two biggest selling books, sports books of all time, is going to join us in a minute. And uh, I know on last week's podcast, I wasn't sure if it was going to happen. And here's here's how it played out. November 5th, I was promised an interview on November 19th with John Feinstein. That was a Monday. The Friday before, I... C- emailed to confirm and got really sketchy hazy details that it would happen so as i recorded last week i wanted to hedge my bet a little bit uh about it well i woke up monday and it turned out uh that it was a go and i had a time i think it was two o'clock or something like that and um i was able to finish up the book and and we did about 32 minutes so it's a nice solid debut Uh, From Mr. Feinstein, I'm excited for you to hear that. A few things else I want to mention before we get to the John Feinstein interview is that as of right now, the Adams Division podcast number four is available. Uh, Peter Winson and I from the Greetings from Allentown podcast, we do these quarterly wrestling podcasts. And uh, this time around, we ranked Survivor Series 87 to 98 And that is live and available on the Greetings from Allentown or Pro Wrestling Only feeds on iTunes. So if you search Greetings from Allentown on iTunes or you search Pro Wrestling Only, uh, you'll find the Adams Division podcast there. We did about 2 hours and 15 minutes or so. Uh, It's a fun show. We released it on Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving tradition, of course, was the Survivor Series for the first 5 or so years of the event. I think 87 to 90 it's on Thanksgiving, then it moved to Thanksgiving Eve, and now, of course, the WWF does their, their shows on uh, Sundays now. Uh, also, um, don't forget you can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com, and uh, find this week's show and last week's show on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters, uh, Apple Podcasts, search, give a five-star review if you feel so inclined. Stitcher, were available there. And if there's a pod catcher that isn't catching this pod, let me know, and I will fix that. So, again, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with John Feinstein. Then I will be back for the book club update. We'll go through everything with the book club. After that, we will take another break. Brian Curtis from Ringer will join us. And then I will be back to close out the show. One last thing featuring what I am thankful for on thanksgiving 2018 all right let's do this this is exciting let's take a break we're going to be right back with john feinstein our first guest today is a columnist for the washington post and is a graduate of duke He is the author of the two biggest selling sports books of all time and is making his debut on the sportscaster today. A warm welcome to the great John Feinstein. How are you doing, Mr. Feinstein? Welcome to the podcast. This is a a huge honor. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Well, let's be on a first name basis, Steve. How are you?
1: I'm doing really good, John. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, I, uh, the first John Feinstein book I ever read was Next Man Up and, uh, I was reading Quarterback over the weekend getting ready for for the interview and uh I don't know it's maybe 200 pages in and right at the top of the page it said next man up life in the NFL and I was like uh even when he's not trying to go full circle it's full circle right uh it's an interesting day to do this I think um for one I just Sadly it is yes. Yeah. uh for one I just read your column that you posted today and On the Washington Post about Alex Smith. And I think everyone who likes football, even a little bit, feels horrible for him today. And uh, with him being a huge part of the book, I thought you wrote a really interesting and honest column about how your time with him sort of affected what you witnessed yesterday with his injury. And, um, you know, as I search for a question um, in something that's more of an observation, I guess. I'll just put it out to you and how has the process of sort of promoting this book and talking about this book and talking about Alex, has it changed for you at all mentally um, in light of what happened yesterday?
0: Well, it's it, certainly when you see someone who, as I said in the column that you referenced, you, you spent most of a year working with. Uh, get injured in that way. It's not like it was a, he rolled an ankle. Uh, it, it's not like he just took a hard hit and came off the field. Uh, it's a life-changing in, injury. Uh, I hope he'll play again. I think medical techniques are much more advanced now than when Joe Theismann suffered basically the same injury 33 years ago to the day, eerily enough. Uh, and Alex is a couple years younger than Joe, but so much of what he does is based on mobility and agility and being able to move around and run with the football. Uh, so you just don't know. And, and that, that's the heartbreaking aspect of it. That I, I sat here yesterday afternoon. We're taping this the, the day after Alex was injured um, and saw what happened uh, as it happened and, and, and was horrified. Now I think, Anybody watching an injury like that, I mean, my wife, when she, she saw a replay, almost got sick, um, but, and she doesn't know Alex Smith, but to know somebody as well as I know him, to know how hard he's worked to become the quarterback he's become in 14 years in the NFL – um to know what his wife and his kids are going to go through uh over the next few days weeks and months i mean quite a lovely thanksgiving right um it was just was just very difficult for me emotionally and uh i did text with alex on on monday morning and he sounded like he was in good spirits but the fact is he's got a very long road back um to recovery joe flacco who was another of the five main characters in this book, also didn't play on Sunday because of a hip injury. Now, I talked to Joe on on Friday, and he believed that if he didn't play this week, he'd be ready to play next week. Of course, half of Baltimore now wants Lamar Jackson to be the starting quarterback because they won on Sunday. So when you do a book like Quarterback, where you spend as much time as I did with the five main characters, I talked to other quarterbacks too, but there were five main guys, Flacco, Alex Smith, Andrew Luck, and I'm thrilled to see him playing as well as he's playing, Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Doug Williams, who was my African-American voice since I've known Doug since he was a rookie in Tampa to date myself. But when you spend that kind of time with people and they're that generous to you with their time and their thoughts and their insights, you can't help but be personally involved in in their lives and in, in wanting things to go well for them.
1: Uh, my brother played uh D one hockey at Yale and when he was a senior almost exactly three years ago today, he had a very similar injury to Alex. Only one of the two bones though, just the uh, just the lower one. And um, you know, he was a senior, he'd almost lived his entire life for that season, you know, when you're a senior you're first line, first power play, first PK, you know, it was like his year to really be that guy and it, it happened at Cornell in a morning skate and you know he called me from the training room and you know was pretty much inconsolable and like you said at bad Thanksgiving he, he had his operation the day after Thanksgiving uh the the folks at Yale the Yale hospital really took great care of him and you know um the big reason he chose Yale ironically is because if anything happened to him on the ice he'd have that that uh that priceless Yale degree so he's uh you know lived on um you know, we don't have to feel sorry for him or anything. He's he's living a great life. But you know, I I thought every time I see an injury like that, you know, I think of Anthony. And um, you know, Alex Smith is interesting because to tie it back to the book, he's probably the most likable character in the book. I thought um, for a lot of reasons, but you know, I'm a huge Saints fan, and uh, so he he really he really stuck it to me on his probably greatest professional day. Uh, but yeah, I, re- I I remember even that day. You know, at the time, kind of my first thing was like, well, it was a classic, right? My team just played in a classic; it's cool. We 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 just lost it, but wow, what a fun game to be a part of! Like when I started, like in the Saints in 1987, they didn't even want a playoff game yet, ever. So that was cool. You know, I had that thought. I also thought, like, good for Alex Smith. Like, there's just something about him that even then I felt great about. And when you read, when you read quarterback, and you read about the way he approached. What happened with him and Colin Kaepernick in San Francisco, the way he approached the handling, the drafting of Patrick Mahomes, in in um, in Kansas City, just makes him a very very likable NFL quarterback, and uh, yeah, and you know it's impossible to read even a page of this book and not walk away with that impression.
0: Well, I I, I would hope so, uh, because if you don't feel that way, then I did Alex a disservice and. Uh, you mentioned the, the Kaepernick situation and, and and going back to that playoff game you're talking about in 2011 Alex was the number one pick in the NFL draft in 2005 and had been basically considered a washout uh, after his first six seasons he's had he'd had injuries he'd had coaching changes he'd worked with five coordinators his first, offensive coordinators his first five years in the league it just hadn't gone well and uh, he gives Jim Harbaugh a lot of credit for reviving his career in 2011 when they ended up going to the NFC Championship game and losing in overtime to the Giants. Uh, and then the next year, as you mentioned, they're rolling along at 6-2, and two, looking like a very legitimate Super Bowl contender, and Alex gets a concussion and has to sit out a game. And Colin Kaepernick comes in and, and, and plays superbly and Jim Harbaugh didn't want to take him out of the lineup because he was playing so well, and he ended up taking him to the Super Bowl. And, and yet, as you said, when I talked to Alex about that whole experience, he talked about how disappointing it was to be on the sidelines in the Super Bowl and not getting to play, uh, but that he understood what, why Harbaugh had done what he did, and that's why Colin Kaepernick has always talked about uh, how gracious and how helpful Alex Smith was to him. And the same thing with Patrick Mahomes. The night Mahomes got drafted in uh, April of 2017, Alex Smith knew that he had been drafted to replace him. I mean, you don't draft a quarter, as he said, you don't draft a guy that high, trade up to draft a guy that high, because he's going to sit. And, and yet, um, as Andy Reid said, the things he did for Mahomes can't be paid back in money. And one of the reasons, not all of it, his talent is the main reason, but one of the reasons Mahomes has been able to step in and play so well this year is because of the mentoring he got from from Alex, and he really he really is a class act uh, as a human being, and that's why you know a lot of fans here in Washington who don't really understand how a football team works will say, "Oh, Colt McCoy is just as good as Alex Smith." Well, there's a lot more to playing quarterback than just. Throwing a pass down the field, or you know, escaping a rush, whatever it might be. And short term, sure. I mean, we saw with Nick Foles last year right. that a backup, a good backup, and Colt McCoy's been a good backup, can step in and play well. But that team will miss Alex Smith as much off the field as on the field. I can tell you that for sure.
1: About a month ago now, I had a guy named uh, Connor Orr, who's a a writer in the uh, Peter King writing tree, kind of like you know these. Coaches have coaching trees. I like to think of that with writers too. But uh, Connor Orr wrote a piece for the MMQB about kind of this new position in the league of quarterbacks who are backup quarterbacks to younger quarterbacks. But they know that the younger quarterback in most cases either is the starter or will be the starter. But there's been this kind of evolution in the game where there's less of the Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre. Well, Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers had their own dynamic, which Jeff Perlman wrote great about in his Gunslinger book. Very bad, right? Tom Brady notoriously doesn't like to talk to younger QBs. But there's this shift where guys are being hired almost specifically for that role. And, you know, Alex wasn't necessarily a great example of that um, per se. He wasn't hired to be anyone's mentor. It just sort of worked out that way. But was, I was thinking about that article in the book, especially when I was reading about Doug Williams. And, the you know, when he gets hurt in the Super Bowl and, um, you know, Jay Schroeder comes in and, and there's just this hostility between the two guys. And, again, may, not a perfect example of mentors, but, uh, you know, anyone brought in a mentor. But I was just thinking about kind of the evolution of that role. And I was thinking of asking you, since you spent so much time uh, with these quarterbacks, and it's interesting maybe what you'd say about Flacco and Lamar Jackson's relationship. Uh, but yeah. Um, What do you think about kind of the evolution of how this almost new position has developed in the league and its extending careers uh, in some cases? And um, Mm -hmm. it's interesting
0: to Well, Jay Schrader and Doug Williams is a completely different story because, you know, Doug was coming back into the NFL. Joe Gibbs brought him into Washington to back up Schrader. And I, I covered uh, those teams a, a fair bit. And I can tell you for a fact, Jay Schrader was not a nice guy. <laughs> he just wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of the hostility between Doug and Jay came from an incident where Jay went down uh, on a play and, and Joe Gibbs thought he was hurt and, and was going to have to come out and sent Doug out there. And Jay Schrader waved Doug off the field like you know he was a servant entering the room. Like, I don't need this. Uh, and Doug never forgot that. And so when the roles were reversed, when Doug had taken the job and was starting in the Super Bowl, and Doug went down, and the training staff came out, so he had to come out at, at least for a play at that point. And as he was being helped off, with his ankle was hurt, uh, he told me his thought was, "There's no way Jay Schrader's finishing this game." Right. And he went right to Joe Gibbs, and it was third down, and they Schrader threw an incomplete pass, and they punted. And he said, Joe, I'm ready for the next series. And Gibbs said, okay, I'm going to give you one series to show me you're not hurt. And, of course, you know what happened in the second quarter. Doug threw four touchdown passes, Washington won going away, and Doug was MVP of the game. So that was a different circumstance. But there's no question um, that there are are now situations in the NFL. uh, You know, we saw with Tyrod Taylor and Baker Mayfield in training camp where Tyrod Taylor was – the older guy the Browns had brought in uh, because they felt they didn't want Baker Mayfield to be in a position where he had to play right away. And said Tyrod Taylor was the starting quarterback on opening day. He got hurt, and Mayfield had to step in and has stepped in for him. Uh, years ago, you never wanted to start a rookie quarterback. Carson Palmer didn't take a snap his entire rookie year playing behind John Kitna, now, there have been exceptions, of course. Peyton Manning yeah. was a starter as a rookie. Uh, Troy Aikman was a starter as a rookie, both on very bad teams. You're talking Hall of Fame quarterbacks in those situations. Normally, guys aren't ready to come in and start for bad teams right away, if only because you don't want them to get injured behind an offensive line that can't block. Uh, now, in a circumstance with Joe Flacco and Lamar Jackson, and, uh, Joe in the book, Joe readily admits that he was caught off guard right. when the Ravens took Lamar Jackson. Last pick of the first round, and the funny story, of course, is John Harbaugh calling him to say, Hey, Joe, we got you a tight end. And Joe said, John, <laughs> right. you're not calling me at midnight to tell me we drafted a tight end. Come on, let's be honest.
1: He got him two, actually. And, two tight ends. Sorry? He got him two tight ends, actually, right? Two good ones. Hunter Hurst Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. and the and, OUK.
0: And, 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 but the point is that... um. When, when Dana Flacco, Joe's wife, said to him the next day, what does this mean? Joe's honest answer was it means things have changed because now they have drafted your successor, just as um, the, the Chiefs drafted Mahomes to be Alex Smith's successor. And Joe uh, wants, wants to finish his career in Baltimore. Likelihood now is he won't. Uh, he's got one more guaranteed year on his contract. Alex was going into the last year of his contract. It would not surprise me at all if Lamar Jackson continues to play and play well and and the Ravens are convinced he's their next quarterback if they don't try to make a trade for Joe the way Kansas City made a trade to move Alex Smith to Washington. It's part of the deal, and and I think all these guys understand it. It's business. Um, Sentimentality will only get you in trouble. The least sentimental coach in the NFL is probably Bill Belichick, and he's probably – the most successful, and those two things aren't coincidence.
1: Yeah, and I think you, you mentioned business. I think it's easier to understand the business of football when you've been as successful at it as Joe Flacco is has been, right? I mean, when you yes,
0: and and look, Joe, as with Alex, I mean, one of the things that all these quarterbacks said is they understand when the public and the media bury them when the team's not going well. They understand that when the team is going well, they're the highest paid guy. Joe Flacco at one point was the highest paid guy in the NFL after the Ravens won the Super Bowl and he had decided not to sign a contract extension to wait and see how the season went. He was MVP of the Super Bowl and he got a 6-year deal for 120 million dollars. And at that point was the highest paid quarterback, highest paid player in the National Football League. So it's not about the money. I mean, once you've been in the league as long as Joe, has Alex Smith has a 71 million dollar guaranteed contract. He's fine financially. It's more about doing something you love and understanding that the window to do it is starting to close as you get into your 30s.
1: Right, and it's one of those things that you I mean you can never once it ends it's over. Right? You can never you can never replace running out of the tunnel. You know, you can never Right. There's and, no and simulation it's like for when that.
0: Ryan Fitzpatrick Two years ago, another of my guys, was thinking about quitting uh, after he had a bad year with the Jets, and his thought was, look, even if somebody does offer me a job, maybe maybe it's time to use my Harvard degree. I got 12 years in the league. I didn't expect to play that long. But his wife, who was also an athlete, she was captain of the soccer team at Harvard, said, Ryan, you got the rest of your life to be an ex-athlete. Yep. You only have a small window to, to, to continue to be a, a professional football player. So if somebody wants to offer you the chance to keep playing for another year or two or whatever it is, you should probably take it. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, of course, came along and offered him a job as Jameis Winston's backup, and he's ended up starting quite a bit because that's been the story of his career. Signed as a backup, eventually become a starter.
1: I want to talk to you more about Ryan, but I just want to go back real quick before because you were talking about fault, and I highlighted this from the book. The criticism comes with the territory, Flacco said with a smile. If you're going to accept being put on a pedestal when you play well, you better be ready to accept getting chopped down when you don't play well. Even if it's not your fault, you, the author, asked, it's always my fault, he said. So I, I had that highlighted, and you kind of brought it up, so I just wanted to, uh, to mention that. Yeah, something. and
0: I, I think that references the first anecdote in the book where uh, after the Ravens had locked to the, Brown, uh, to the Browns, to the Steelers at home last year, 26-9. Joe was asked in his press conference to assess his play that day, and he said, I sucked. You know, I'm the quarterback. I'm responsible for the offense. We scored nine points. We turned it over three times. Uh, That's on me. And, uh, by the way, two of the turnovers were interceptions that bounced off of receivers' hands, but that didn't matter. And I got in the car that day to drive home, and I turned on a post-game radio show, and they were just going to the phones, and the first caller said, when is Joe Flacco going to step up and take responsibility for the failures of this offense? And I'm thinking, other than saying I sucked, it's my fault. What more does the guy want from him? But and that that was Joe's answer when I brought that up.
1: Yeah, that's 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 really <laughs> when he gets take... It's like, what does he want to do? Uh, go to midfield and uh, bury himself, uh, or
0: something like right. that. Yeah, exactly.
1: Fitzpatrick is there a, another interesting guy. Just you know, like you said, being the first. Quarterback from Harvard to uh, to be a starter in the league, and you can't watch a you know a Fitzpatrick game and not have the word Harvard come out. Uh, right, and um, he was here in Buffalo where I live, and and had a you know his first real success in the league, and then he went to the Jets and he has that great season, and then I'll never forget the Mike and the Mad Dog reunion of all things was in between his great season with the Jets and then his will they pay him won't they pay him and i i just remember him sitting in the crowd at the mike and the mad dog reunion at radio city music hall with the the famous beard and the whole crowd is chanting like pay him pay him or something he's got this smirk on his face and as someone who had watched him sort of get a bad bad shake here in buffalo i felt really good for the guy again just another really likable character in the book i thought
0: yeah you know uh, I, I, and the one the the guys i worked with have two common traits one is they're all very bright guys, and that's one of the reasons why I think they agreed to work with me and why I, I wanted them to work with me, because they're all smart enough to understand the kind of detail I'm looking for in a book like this. And all, as you said, very good guys, just, just good people. And, and Ryan is a guy who understands that he was a long shot to make the league in the first place, coming out of Harvard uh 250th draft uh, picking in the draft in 2005 out of 256 players who were drafted thrilled to be drafted um got a chance to play his rookie year in St. Louis with the Rams and and then has been in seven different franchises and become the starter at some point on all seven of those teams uh to the point where people refer to the Fitzpatrick curse or the Fitzpatrick jinx because if he signed somewhere as a backup Sooner or later, he's going to be the starter for one reason or another. I mean, with the Jets, you remember, it was Geno Smith getting punched out the locker room by a teammate. The start of this season in Tampa Bay, it was Jameis Winston getting in trouble with an Uber driver a couple of years ago. So one way or the other, Ryan's always ended up as a starter. He's not a great quarterback. Nobody, including Ryan, would tell you that. But the fact that he's still around after 14 years tells you a lot about how people view him as a person. They want him in that locker
1: room. Yeah, and he's resilient. You know, and he... he... He has a game like he had yesterday, which wasn't good. And nope. if they go back to him next week, I wouldn't be surprised if he went 4-0 and zero the other way. You know what yeah, I mean? He, he can't that's, bounce that's back true. like that. And, yeah. and,
0: and he's, he's bounced back from bad games. He's bounced back from bad seasons. Uh, and, and given another chance to play, has played well. I mean, after two games this year, right, everybody's calling him Fitzmagic. When two years ago, after his last game with the Jets, I think many people thought his career was over.
1: Yeah, and I think if you remember, I don't know if you if you watch the season of Hard Knocks that featured uh, the Buccaneers. Yep. You know, just what we only get like as a as a fan, you get that insight. And I remember, and my wife watches with me every year, and she's you know she's a football fan, but more of a fan that is there to support the Saints and support my uh, my passions because I think it makes her life easier. But um, she would even say like that guy just presents himself more as the starter and the leader than Jameis. And I I would almost make excuses for Jameis. Like, well, he's still maturing. He's growing. And you're looking at guys in different spots of their career. But I, as I thought about what she was saying more, I think I, I, and as I read this book, I, I thought back to that. And I thought, you know, this guy has been in this league this long. This is a big reason because he people want him around, right? Like, and and I heard that yesterday from the, from the, Ravens players, you know, players saying that when Joe gets back, this is still his team. You know, you just right. you, you, you feel these guys, the presence like you and like you said about Alex, that there's something else you can't replace. You know, the quote from Andy, Andy Reid, it's money that can't be paid back. And I think that's right. another thing about these guys that you really highlighted well. And that comes out in the book is that make yourself a guy people want to be around right that's that's huge in this league
0: yeah and and again Ryan is mature he's obviously as we said he's very bright he's been in the league a long time and 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 when he comes into a situation like Tampa he knows one of the reasons they signed him was so that he could help mentor Jameis Winston who's very young and not very mature as we've seen in in a number of situations now both on and off the field and that's why I'm sure Ryan came across as kind of the wise old head in the room because that's what he is he's the wise old head in the room Jameis winston is still basically a kid who's learning and you hope that he'll learn from ryan because if he does he'll definitely benefit from it
1: i want to talk to you a little bit about doug williams because as you said he's the african american voice in the book and he's also very different than the other four because he played significantly he's been retired yeah he 20 years right? for a long time um and um He's he was re- it was really interesting reading some of his quotes because I'm going to hopefully I'm talented enough to get this out right. But it felt like sometimes when you would ask him and you did a good job I think of counterpointing him in the book too. I think that sometimes when you would ask him about players especially when it came to the draft where certain quarterbacks were drafted. It sort of felt like Doug had a little bit of that late 70s Unfairness—I don't want to say as like a chip on his shoulder, but it's something that still projects out how he views football in 2017. Like he is really insistent in the book, or maybe not really insistent, but he says in the book that he thinks Deshaun Watson would have been the first pick if he wasn't black in that in that draft. He says that mm-hmm. you know Russell Wilson was drafted much later because he was black. You know where you know and
0: Prescott too,
1: and Prescott. Where to me it's like well. Prescott was a middling prospect and Russell Wilson was five foot ten you know what about those things and you do push back and make those examples in the book but I wonder do you think that some of these things are a product of where Doug Williams came into the league and how things were then and that he's ignoring a little bit of progress or am I being naive and is he still seeing something there that is really holding these guys back
0: Honestly, I think you're being naive. And and I think Doug's experience with this is, as opposed to you and to me, uh, firsthand. And he lived through it back in the 70s and 80s. Remember, when he walked away from the Bucs after the 1982 season, he'd been a starter in the NFL for five years, had made the playoffs three of those five years, and he was the 54th highest-paid quarterback in the league. Now, that had to be for only one reason because he was African-American then, he, he would be the first to tell you there's been progress since then. And you know, Obviously, Jameis Winston was the number one pick in the draft. Cam yeah, Newton was the number one pick in the draft. Jamarcus Russell, who was a washout, was the number one pick in the draft. But I think the point he, he was making was, unless you're a no-brainer the way Cam Newton was, the way Jameis Winston was, uh, scouts are going to find a reason, not all scouts, but some scouts are going to find a reason not to take you. What reason was there to not take Deshaun Watson in the first five picks in the draft? He was six foot three, strong arm, mobile, and all he'd done at Clemson his last two years was go 28 and two, and and and, and, and had proven that he could take a team down the field in the final moments of of a of a key game. And yet, you know, uh, Mitchell Trubisky went with the number two pick. And when I said to Doug, where does where does Deshaun Watson go? if he's if he's white and he said ahead of Trubisky. And I don't think that was an illegitimate point for him to make. I think you know look at Bill Polian saying last year that Lamar Jackson should be a wide receiver because he's quote athletic, the old stereotype, and not tall enough to play quarterback. He's six foot three. Baker Mayfield six feet and a quarter inch. Do you think if Lamar Jackson was the exact same quarterback he is and was white that anybody would have been suggesting he moved to wide receiver? I don't think so. And not everybody was. And the, and the, and the Ravens drafted him as a quarterback, interestingly, with an African American general manager. Um, but I, I, I think we've made a lot of progress. But I think, especially when you look at where our country is, forget the NFL. When you look at where our country is, to to think that race isn't still a huge issue. Uh, is in fact a little bit naive. No offense.
1: No, I'm not offended at all. Um, look at I was I, I, that was great. I, that, I mean, hey, uh, I was curious to see where where you would take that because you know when you look, I mean, like, when you look at that draft, you know, Trubisky was a was a surprise to me, and obviously, I think everyone's going to say Mahomes too. You know, like why not Mahomes there in that spot? And uh,
0: and with with good reason. Now, right. I honestly thought that Watson was a better quarterback than Mahomes coming out of college and you know, that's one reason why I'm not scouting in the NFL. Well although Sh- Watson's pretty darn good.
1: And Sean Payton has said, he won't say who was one or who was two, but he did say that number one and number two on the Saints board that year was Lattimore and Mahomes. Um and if right. Mahomes was there at eleven, they probably would have taken Mahomes. That's so, why
0: the Chiefs traded up, right? So one of the, number 10.
1: One of the brilliant quarterback minds in the league, in Sean Payton, and I'm not even being biased saying that. I don't think. Uh, yeah, had, and Andy
0: Reid's a pretty good quarterback mind too, and he really traded up to ten in order right. to get him.
1: So you know, maybe maybe uh, it's it's poor evaluation by some scouts who are living in a different era too, um, mm-hmm. and looking at you know, I mean. And I, and well, I wonder, there's still
0: a tendency with some, and Doug made another good point. Yeah. Look at the backup position. Quarterbacks. There aren't very many African Americans who are backups, are they? It's sort of like in basket in college basketball where almost all the walk-ons on the end of, 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 of benches are white. And there, there are still racial stereotypes out there. As I said, we've made a lot of progress since Doug was a rookie in 1978 when he was only the second uh, starter in the history of the NFL at the position behind James Harris, another grambling guy. Uh, we've made a lot of progress since then, but we still probably have a long way to go.
1: And shout out to the Virginia team manager, draining a three the other night from the end of the bench.
0: <laughs> that was <laughs> sweet, wasn't it? <laughs> that
1: was great. Uh, John Feinstein is the author of the two highest-selling sports books of all time, and he is at Books on Twitter. And of course, he still writes a column for the Washington Post, which there's a great one today. Uh, which I encourage you to look up about what happened to Alex Smith. And I could spend an hour, probably two, talking to him about his new book, Quarterback, the most important position in the National Football League. Uh, But I had a half an hour, and we ate it up talking about about four. I think we got to about four of the five, which is pretty good. Uh, Let me ask you two quick things, and I'll get you out of here on those. Um, The first quick thing I wanted to ask you, since you've spent so much time on this position um, and have studied it, and the game and I respect you so much just tell me a little bit about what you're seeing from Drew Brees this year 77 percent completion percentage 2900 yards passing and at Thanksgiving he has 25 touchdowns and one interception I've been watching football since 1987 and I've never seen a player in such control I know you at least got to see the Redskins game which was a historic night for Brees. obviously give me two minutes on Breeze if you can
0: well, uh, he's another example of why scouting quarterback is so imperfect. Uh, he, he was drafted at the top of the second round, but not in the first round coming out of Purdue. Why? Because he was too short right. to play the position. Then he hurt his shoulder in San Diego, and they basically gave up on him. You know, Drafted Phillip Rivers, who's had a great career, um, and, and offered him a, a, a contract that was full of incentives, and he said, the heck with you and went to New Orleans, and we all know what he's done in New Orleans, not only on the field, but off the field uh, in the wake of Katrina. Um, he's hes going to be in the Hall of Fame about five minutes after he retires. Uh, he's won a Super Bowl. Uh, he's one of the great quarterbacks in history, and much like Alex Smith, probably a better person than he is a quarterback.
1: He's made all my dreams as a fan come true, every single one. I mean... He played his 200th. That's all you need to hear, right? He's played his 200th game as a Saint yesterday, and I wish he could play 200 more. And even after the best games. The rate
0: he's going, he might, Steve.
1: <laughs> yesterday, I, I promise you, at least for one second, I thought, oh, man, that's one last game. He's going to be my quarterback. But all right, very, very last thing, and I'll let you out of here on this. I just need to know what you think about Tiger and Phil this weekend. Is Are people going to buy this? Um, is it going to be compelling? Should I buy it? Uh, is there any reason to think Tiger's... I hope
0: nobody buys it. Okay. Uh, I think it's a sham. Uh, it's it's nothing but a money grab. It, you know, $9 million winner take all. They're not putting their own money up. And corporate America's putting the money up. Um, they're going to pretend that they're buddies trash-talking one another. It, they'll probably keep the match close for 15 holes, then play for real for three holes. I have no interest in it none and and in fact when they announced it was pay-per-view i think i tweeted something like there's not enough money they can pay me to watch
1: again the book is called quarterback inside the most important position in the national football league and i can't think of a better stocking stuffer for dad or grandpa or brother or sister whoever loves football than this uh at j feinstein books on twitter and of course the columns in the washington post anything else you want to plug
0: well, I, I just quickly, I do yeah. have a, a book out if you're looking for something for your teenager for Christmas called The Prodigy, which is fiction, and it's set at the Masters, and it's about a 17-year-old kid um, who has a chance to win the Masters because he is a prodigy, uh, and all the pressures he faces uh, because he's so talented at such a young age.
1: This is such an honor, and I hope I, I, hope I did the 30 minutes justice. Thank you so much for doing this. And you hopefully did well,
0: Steve. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have a great Thanksgiving.
1: Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care. I was a little too tall. could have used a few pounds. High pants, points, all down now. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes. And points all her own.
2: Sudden way up high.
1: Way up and high. I wanna thank John Feinstein for appearing on the Sportscasters. Out in the backseat of my 60 shell. The book club. Is the reason that John was on the show today? Of course, he was here to promote his book, Quarterback. I want to thank him for that. Check out Quarterback. He also has the uh, nonfiction book or the fiction book that he mentioned. Uh, if you have a teenager looking to uh, that you're shopping for this Christmas, all right. Here's what's left of the book club right now. It's been busy, but we still have The Down Goes Brown: History of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport. The World's Most Ridiculous League, and Sean McIndoe, the author of this book, is going to be on the program next week uh, to talk about his book, The Down Goes Brown History of the NHL, so look for him next week to talk about that. Also, uh, a new one in the mix, Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gala by David Grzybowski. Uh David, of course, reached out to me. I got a book in the mail uh, from David. And I'm going to read this, and we'll have him on soon. Uh, Mr. All-Around, the, the Life of Tom Gala. Uh, there's a forward in it by Bill Rafferty. have been hearing a lot of buzz about this book. People are excited about it, uh, and I'm excited to, uh, to talk to Tom and, and get him on uh, as well. Don't forget the big fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created by Jane Levy. Uh, if you want more information and want to hear our interview with Jane, you can check that out by listening to episode 17 Season 7, episode 17. Of course, we had Jeff Perlman's Football for a Buck. We took care of that. I want to thank Jeff. Um, and it's been a busy fall. Busy fall for the book club. Okay, quick announcement, though. I spoke to Keith the Cop uh, from email uh, this week, and we will be promoting Anthony Cumia's new book, Permanently Suspended is the name of it. I believe it came out on the 20th Uh, last week for sure. That was the pub date. Uh, The publisher is going to send a copy of the book. Hopefully he sends two uh, so we can do a contest and uh, Keith. I have it on Keith's authority uh, that Anthony will join us. Anthony Kumi has been on this podcast before. So I don't think it's a long shot to think he would be on again. And of course uh, he seems to be out there really promoting this book pretty hard. Uh, So I'm really excited hopefully it all works out like I said I heard from Keith who said that I'd hear from the publisher this was late in the day right before the holiday I haven't heard from the publisher yet So it's kind of just in motion I kind of feel good enough to announce it because it seems like it's going to happen so you know if for some reason it doesn't obviously I'll let you know but as of right now permanently suspended by Anthony Kumia, I'm putting it in the mix uh, we're going to promote it and we're going to uh help Anthony sell it, and and, and we're going to have Anthony on to talk about it. Uh, Mr. All Around the Life of Tom Gala by David Grisbowski and The Down Goes Brown History of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport in the world's most ridiculous league by Sean McIndoo, and uh, Sean will join us next week on the podcast, uh, episode 19 of season 8. All right, with all that said, let's take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk to Brian Curtis from Ringer. Our next guest is the executive editor at Ringer. He's a graduate of Texas, and he's a great friend of this program. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Brian Curtis. What's up, Brian? How you doing, buddy?
3: Just fine. How you doing?
1: Doing really good, really good. Um, good to hear your voice. It's been a bit. Um
3: it has, it has. But I'm happy. I'm happy to be back uh, for, you know, a solid 45 minutes of uh, Texas OU conversation.
1: Yeah, let's just start <laughs> yeah. right there because look at I actually don't mind losing the Texas game. Look, obviously you want to win the Texas game, right?
3: <laughs> but that's the, that's the first lie you told on this podcast. It's so but
1: but here's the thing. You accept the fact that you're not going to beat Texas 30 times in a row and I'm sure Texas accepts it. like sometimes <laughs> you're going to lose that game. That's just all there is to it. <laughs> Right. No one is like what's like the like six maybe is like the streak for either team, you know, ever or whatever. So, yeah. But here's what pisses me off is that now Texas has to shit the bad. They can't finish the season out. That's what annoys me because we should be able to have like it was set up leaving there. It's like, okay, well, we'll have a top 10 game for the Big 12 championship instead. And that'll be really cool and unique and fun. And now it looks like it's just going to be this really boring back-to-back West Virginia games that I know they're going to split. And this conference is going to shit on itself again because this dumb championship game is going to cost them a playoff spot, which they might not have got anyway because apparently the committee cares about defense or something. I mean, who knows? It might not have worked out anyway. But I don't know. You see what I mean? Yeah. Like That's what annoys me. Like, yeah. come on, Texas.
3: Finish the season I out. First, I mean, first, you don't need to tell me about how being upset about shooting the bed. Yeah, I know. Because obviously I was. But also, the revenge game would have been so amazing.
1: Right? Wouldn't and that then, have been so sick?
3: Know. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, just just the way, you know, who was it? Was it Gerald Wilbon, the Texas defensive tackle that was chirping at Baker Mayfield on Twitter after the game? Baker had said when he committed, "Oh, you made a huge mistake, and you're never going to be you," and all this stuff, and and Kyler Murray has. There's a lot of Kyler Murray bad blood with Texas, weirdly, both from the recruitment stuff, not going there, death playing at a And M. You know, just it's just all kinds. I just would love that game again, absolutely.
1: Now, I guess it's not 100 percent that it won't happen, right? Like I was looking at, I think Max Olson made a, say, made a chart. There's a way that they could still play. I think.
3: Virginia Tech has to lose I mean excuse me, West Virginia has to lose both?
1: That might be it. Someone I'll try to find the chart while we're talking. Um I 'cause I'm pretty sure it Texas
3: was. Texas has two conference losses and one of them is to the West Virginia, so I think West Virginia would have to have three. If
1: I'm, yeah. I'm doing my math right. I think it was Max Olson who made it and it just kinda of shows like the relevant games and uh you know who if who if, if who wins them, then who will, you know, who will play who. Um, and it was pretty slick, the way he did it. And um, here's the problem, though. And OU is a great November team, but this might be the year where that, that defense is just not... Like, at least last year, they would play a, a bad first half, but they would be able to kind of regroup and get some stops in the second half. They're just... They're, like, not on the field. They have They have nothing in the secondary at all. Like they're just not.
3: This part is part of the transition, right? Like to me, like one of the great things that OU pulled off, which Texas was unable to, with Mack Brown, was they had their great coach was essentially able to just smoothly hand it over to somebody. So there was like no hiccup in recruiting. There was no backbiting in the program. You know, no factions, all that stuff. Right? He just, he, you know, stoops left when he wanted to. Said this is my guy treat him well. The problem with that is that he still has Bob Stoops' defensive staff. right? And, you know, he would so he had to wait, essentially, what, a year and change to fire
1: Mike. Yeah, and then he does in the middle of the season and so now you're kind of scrambling. You know, they had this five-star recruit come in in the secondary that I think they thought would solve a lot of problems and he hasn't played, like, like he's played like an eighteen-year-old, you know what I mean. Like he hasn't played like someone who, like maybe like say Trace Sermon did last year or C.D. Lamb. You know, I think maybe those are easier in the skill positions. You know, it's like here's the ball, run. You know, and that's I mean that's one thing that I that does blow me away about Oklahoma is the running backs. I mean, it's just it, it's just an endless stream. You know. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, it's just with, me-
3: you and go- it's always OU, it's always like that. They have a guy graduating, you know, Thank God we never had to see that guy again. And then the next guy comes in at running back. And by the way, OUs like that with receiver too. They seem to have this endless stream of receivers who run like a four seven but are always open.
1: Right. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean they're they're fantastic they're fantastic at at filling the the offensive side of the ball. Even quarterback has been pretty seamless. I mean, you know, Landry, yeah. even Landry oh, yeah. Jones, you know, is was good. I mean, he wasn't great, but he was good, very good, maybe. Um, you know. So they've been really, really... And offensive line. They have a huge physical offensive line all the time. And that's why they're winning these games right now is because with like seven minutes left, they're finding a way to not... to keep their defense off the field by turning it into a running offense and really slowing the game down and really leaning on being physical, which you wouldn't think of from a big 12 team. Like they are, they can be physical on the offensive side of the ball late in the games because they're so big and strong on the offensive line and the running backs are so good. And like a running back, like Trey sermon is really a pounder, you know, for a true sophomore. Um, he's so mature physically and he, he really, you know, wears in Kennedy Brooks is, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I knew his name going into the season, you know, and he's, Rodney Anderson gets hurt, he gets a chance, and he's running for 200 yards in games. It's like, oh, my God. It's just – it's like there's always another four-star running back there. But something about this team, I just can't see him winning West Virginia and the Big 12 championship game this year. I just don't see it. I think that they're going to lose one of them. I found the chart. So there's there's two scenarios where OU is the one seed and Texas is the two seed. Okay, and it means that OSU beats West Virginia, Texas beats... Not, cr- not crazy. Texas beats Iowa State, right. OU o- beats, beats West Virginia, and then Iowa State beats Kansas State. And then okay. the other way is the same. Basically, the ISU-KSU game doesn't matter. Hmm. Because there's two ways that they right. make it, and it's both ISU KSU. It's the same exact scenario, except with them flipped.
3: That doesn't that doesn't seem that doesn't seem totally far fetched to me, as far as scenarios go.
1: No, I mean OSU could win that game against West Virginia, and then it's just does OU and Texas win out. That's it. That's all it is.
3: Can I ask you an OU fan question? Yeah. Do you worry that Lincoln Riley is going to be the next head coach of the Dallas Cowboys?
1: No, I believe him. I believe that he's not ready to leave yet. I do think that he's too young and too talented to never go to the NFL. He will leave at some point for that. That challenge will – he will want to do that, I think, in my heart of hearts. But I think right now I think he is so new to the job that loving being the OU coach hasn't wore off enough to be tempted, I, I don't think.
3: If the Cowboys Jason Garrett their way through the rest of the year and Jerry Jones comes to Lincoln and says, Lincoln, I know you're from Texas. You're a Texas guy. Yeah.
1: No, and he could sell seven, him. He, Jerry could sell him. $7
3: million him. to be the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys and stick Stack Prescott. You say, he say, you really said no?
1: No, I, no I, look, it, Jerry Jones could sell anyone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, so yeah, of course. There's a chance, you know, and they got the money, right? I mean, OU pays Lincoln Riley very well, but OU is not going to be getting into a bidding war with Jerry Jones. They're not going to win that. Right. You know, I I think Cleveland is definitely, definitely a no. Like, I don't think he's going to Cleveland, even to be with Baker. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't think because as soon as that job came up, I'm like, oh, I wonder if he'd want to jump with, you know, but he's not going to do it to go work for Haslam. You know what I mean? Like, that's not the job. But no you way. but you make a good point about Dallas. Of course, Jerry Jones could sell him. But I do think that the timing isn't great to make the sales pitch because I do think that, you know, he's not worn out on recruiting yet, you know, because I think that happens. You know, I think he's still...
3: He's still pretty new, right? Yeah, I mean, even he's so after, new. Ne- even after next year, it feels like a little, like, it makes a little more sense for him to be more tempted, right? You know, like, okay makes the let's say he makes the final the playoff this year you know kind of sneaks in the playoff doesn't win it he's been a couple times i don't know you know then it makes makes a little more sense this does feel a little bit early
1: you know what else might make sense is jason garrett moves on after this year they hire a new guy he's a coach for four years then that's the nervous time that next time (laughs) you know now lincoln's had the job six seven years he might be getting sick of recruiting. You know, maybe they did cash in one. He's got a ring, maybe. You know, or a couple more playoff appearances, a couple more Big Twelve championships. And like I said, I do think he's so young and so talented that at some point he's going to want to see what he can do at the top level. There's no doubt in my mind. At yeah, some, at some point he's going to want it. He's going to want that challenge.
3: Then he just got to decide whether he wants to be a college coach or a pro coach. Because Stoops could have done that, you know, from the early aughts. The mid odds, definitely right. Right, he could have he could have taken off and taken. He would have had a hundred, a hundred opportunities, and instead he was like, "No, nah, I want to be a college coach." You know, and I'm I, fine with
1: this. I think that if you're Lincoln Riley, you can look at Nick Saban and say, "Look, at I can do this OU job for however I want to do it. I can try the NFL. If it doesn't work out, I was so successful at OU, I can get a job at a top program. You know, and go back to college if I'd rather do that." You know, because he's, yeah. Again, he's not 40, right? I mean, he's not even 40. So he's got, he, he can go a lot of ways, right? He could just be Joe Paterno, uh, if you're allowed to use him as an example, um, anymore. I don't know. Yeah, I say. Uh, <laughs> Whatever. Bobby <laughs> Batton. Right. Okay. Yeah. He can just stay at one place for 25 years. Maybe I should have just said Bob Stoops. Uh, he can be that and, and ride his career out at OU. He, that's an option. And, um, you know, or he can uh, he can try it. I think he's gonna want to try it at some point. But, um, man, he's got to fix that defense because uh, it's a lot like my NFL team, the Saints. Uh, what I've struggled with them, it's like you know, we burned a lot of the Drew Brees years because we just didn't have a defense that could compete. And I look at some of those seven and nine teams in the Brees era, and they won seven mm-hmm. games because Drew Brees was so good that you almost can't win. You, like he's so good you can't win less than that with him. Yeah. Like they had statistically the worst defense in terms of yards given up in 2015 or 14 and they won 7 games because he would win 52-49 against the Giants with 7 TDs. Like like he's capable yeah. of that, you know? But they but it's like, well, how do we put ourselves in a position to need that? Because like all you need, like all they needed to do is make sure you have a fifteen to twenty defense, and you can win nine to twelve games every year mm-hmm. with Drew Brees. You know, so and they're proven that the last couple yeah. of years. This has like last year's defense wasn't great, but it was good enough to win eleven games because they're so good on the other side of the ball. But
3: yeah, and I just feel with Riley too that college football is so about you know so much about PR and appearances. Um, that now national writers know one thing about him, which is that his defense is bad this year. And if it's bad ever again, they'll just hit that button over and over again. You know, mm-hmm. it becomes the uh, Mac, Mac Brown can't recruit a quarterback. It just, it just like because it just takes on this life of its own, right? And uh, it winds up just becoming weirdly, you know, the like defining feature of them,
1: right? Last miles, so. can't, last miles can't control the clock. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mac becomes, Brown can It
3: becomes, and, it, and it's like, you know, 60, 70% true. But of course, all these people do other things quite well. Um, but it's weirdly in college, I think, it's just because you don't you have a very a national press corps that does not watch, you know, every game. That right. weirdly just becomes a thing. Anyway.
1: And the last thing about Lincoln, I will say, that I've seen in, in the last couple of years with him, as opposed to the last few years of Stoops, is the recruiting classes are getting a lot. Are ranked much higher nationally. He's getting a lot more blue chip players, so I got to think that at some point it will stabilize. Because I mean, you can only bring in so many five star recruits on the defensive side of the ball, four star four star recruits, and not eventually put together a decent defense. You know what I mean? It's just it's so cyclical, yeah, college. I mean, it's, it's like, can you? Is he going to be able to pair him, or is he going to? You know, you only got this one, one year so with Kyler Murray.
3: Yeah. I mean, one thing that's so interesting with him is that they're they're kind of back in Texas again. You know, they they were, you know, such a force. And then for whatever reason, kind of toward the end of the stoops era, they just kind of completely pulled out of Texas. But Texas high school right now is doing a phenomenal job uh, creating quarterbacks and defensive backs and kind of a really bad job creating everything else defensively or pretty much everything else totally. Uh, and so their kind of recruiting strategy is interesting because they're not depend- as dependent on the state as a school like UT is. So they actually can go get, the, you know, defensive linebackers and defensive linemen elsewhere. And I think it's really hurt. If you look at, A&M, you know, look at A&M's team this year, right? And they just don't – the state is not producing, you know, as many great linebackers and DBs because of the spread – you know, everybody in high school is playing spread. So right. anyway, it's just kind
1: of fascinating. That is really interesting. Well, that's the nice thing about you having that pipeline into California where they've done really well, Yeah. you know, the last six or seven years, you know, I mean, even being able to go into California and get Joe Mixon the way they did, Um.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: you know, and uh, you know, Kenny Stills and um, I, I mean, and the Kenny Stills, that was a group. There was like four of them are all from California that came in together that, that year, I can't remember who all four were. I know Kenny and, still-
3: and Texas and you should absolutely recruit that part of the country. Because yes, yes, but there aren't there aren't any good football teams out there. Right, right?
1: USC is like, not what it was. USC is yeah. not
3: USC is not good. Yeah. UCLA is horrible. And I've just always wondered, like I know there's not a ton of guys. You know, Arizona doesn't have like that bumper crop, but California definitely does. You know, Colorado has a guy here and there. You should just be pulling guys out of there all the time.
1: Yeah, it's like cuz the SEC almost doesn't need it, right? Like they like they're there but not as competitively because not, they're so focused on their own really. region. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I mean, where else? I mean, what else do you think of Florida? You know, OU hasn't done much there. A few guys, but not really. So, yeah, I think it's that that's locked a, down. Yeah, I think that's a big that's a big edge they've had is their pipeline into California, being able to do well in California I think has been really big for them. Um,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: Joe Mixon's probably the best example. I mean, he's obviously the, the highest rated player. I mean, cause he was like the number one player overall in that recruiting class or definitely the number one running back. But, um, not that he had the best first week on campus, but, uh, <laughs> yes. <that laughs> understatement. Was a of a different story. Right. Uh, um, anyway. yeah. Anyway, Ringer, uh, I was reading your work today. I was going back and, um, obviously you're doing the, uh, podcast with David, which still needs its own feed. Um
3: thank thank you.
1: Yes. Uh it's time. It's time I mean, to have I mean, its I, mean, I mean
3: I mean I'm not advocating for it, but thank thing for listening. That's yes. Nice
1: do and uh okay. I was reading some of your work. I thought well, let's talk about some of this stuff. I want to start with the the, the thing you wrote about concussions and kind of the way mm-hmm. uh it's handled on T V and I gotta tell you that I'm gonna admit this I'm, it it's going to make me maybe sound like a horrible person but Congrats. i don't care listen here's where i stand the people the players who played in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and even the, ter- the beginning of the turn of the century they really got screwed they got treated unfairly they were misled they didn't understand they weren't given the right information and the stories are tragic and the league really needs to stop with the denials of claims and all the horror stories you hear like on Real Sports and take care of those guys. So I want to say that first. like, Congrats. But we know now. These men who choose to play this game know the risks of the game. They know that when they get hit, they, need, they should come out and tell someone they got hit and be checked. And they know that if they don't, they're risking what has happened and been documented very well in films and documentaries and studies and all that. And they make a decision to play football for a, large, for a much larger amount of money than the average person makes, and I know not like I, I'm, I'm, re, I'm resisting saying millions cause not everyone makes millions. I understand that. You know what I mean? Like not every player is equally rich in the NFL. There's definitely, but I just, I want to give you a small analogy. When I was in college, I worked hockey schools and um, uh-huh. I would travel around the country um, and work in different places. And there was some kids from Western Canada that, uh, that I worked with and I was talking with the one kid one time, and he's like, "When I'm done with college, I'm gonna go to Alberta and I'm gonna work in the oil on the, on, the, on the oil rigs." And he's telling me, he's like, "You know, it starts at like 70, and he's like, "And if I can get f- through the first five years, you know, and you get into management, he's like, it's huge money." And I'm like, "Oh, why doesn't everyone do this?" And he's like, "Well, I said if I can get through the first five years because the drugs and the danger and." The health risks, it's its rough, and that's why they charge what they – that's why they pay what they pay. He's like, but I think I, I, I'm the kind of guy who can get through that and make a career of it. So it's like, it's like an example of like there's this opportunity here, and he understands the risks. So he's assessed them, and he's going forward, and I feel like that's what's happening in contact sports now. You understand the risks. You accept the risks. And I'm reading your thing, and I'm like – really like we need a set of rules for how we even discuss a hit like i don't know i was reading it feeling like the biggest dick in the world because i was like not <laughs> i was not like i was like these people at bu are just out of control at this point like come on well i
3: think i think i think a couple of things i think one thing is even if you if you feel the way that the way you feel you just say sure a lot of people feel like you do the um i think there's still room here to say that the announcer should use correct terminology and have correct information right like the lead example in that story is Tony, Tony romo watching dak prescott take a hit and go on and say in front of millions of people on television oh he just got a concussion
1: right yeah oh they should di- I, yeah oh i should have said that they definitely should not just be diagnosing these injuries like i
3: <laughs> right so that's that's just that's just putting that out in the air, and of course you know now just like I do, as soon as that happens, that's on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? That's a thing. Uh, then then when Dak Prescott runs in two series later, we're all looking at each other like, wait, what? A-? You know, it's just like it just becomes those guys. And I totally understand because when I speak extemporaneously on the podcast or wherever, I, I often say things like, oh, I was like, why did I just say that? I totally understand it. But those dudes have such a giant audience. You just, there's some stuff that can be cleaned up.
1: That's fair. That's you fair.
3: Know? Um, I also think just understanding that, you know, concussions and head injuries aren't exactly the same thing. I think, you know, having the people be able to report, which they, which they mostly do now, even you know, the sideline reporters talk about the protocol and, you know, he's going through the protocol just so somebody at understand at home understands what's happening. Right. Think about injuries in the NFL and it's not just concussions. I find this with everything. Often, what will happen if somebody gets hurt and, and on a broadcast that's not well produced, you just never hear about it again. You know, they just kind of disappear because the announcers just get distracted or the game's moving fast or they just lose track of it. And I always hate that because i was like, wait a second. If I care about this team, then I care about that player, right? I want to know what happened to him. I you don't, know? and it doesn't even have to get into the whole, you know, should they, the risk to football. If I just actually as a fan care about what happened to that guy. And now he's just gone right and i'm having to search twitter i'm having to figure something out and it's like you should just follow up on this on the broadcast yeah and i I'll, do fine
1: okay go ahead yeah but, no you go ahead
3: well i just just the other point i was going to say is it is strange to me in this world we live in and, and and maybe maybe other people don't have a problem with it but where we're watching somebody who's crumpled on the field could be a concussion it could be a broken leg it could be just you know something where they're, they're taking a long time maybe the card's coming out and we cut to these commercials after like two seconds and now we're going you know with the Budweiser Blue Knight and Dilly Dilly and or some kind of and it's like whoa <laughs> what you know just like okay we we can't look at this we if even if we take your position that we accept the risks of football right with these guys know what they're doing they know the risks they're better informed now than they were that as soon as we see an injury it's like the camera just can't we have to look away oh my god I, I just don't want to see this anymore bring on a funny commercial bring on bring on Dilly Dilly bring on Bud Bud Light um, I find that to be very funny when I watch football because it's almost like, and I understand there are various reasons from a production standpoint of that, but it's almost like they just the camera just can't look at football's injuries and carnage with a straight face. They have to turn away, right? Or they're afraid the audience can't look at it. Anyway, I just find that to be very interesting.
1: Well, you made the point in the article about how it's almost a paradox because we would previously criticize them for sticking with them too long showing them too many times, you know? And then now, so now we're kind of like, it's almost like a, we went the opposite way so far and it's like, well, what's the balance there, right? Like where, where do we go or, you know, should we cut away? But should we cut away? Is there a certain, is there an appropriate thing to cut to? Or, you know, that is a, that's a tricky spot. I think from, it's almost like trying to deal with the Anthem stuff. Like, you know, do you show it? Do you not show it? How do you handle it? You know, like, I don't know if there's even a right answer because, like you said in your article, you know, hey, we used to criticize them for the exact opposite thing. Yeah,
3: and, I, and I'm just of the opinion that no matter what we think, what you or I or anybody thinks about the dangers of football the entries, we shouldn't just ignore it, right? If it is part of the game, then we should accept it as part of the game and we should, you know, be adults and be able to deal with it, Right. And maybe it doesn't, you know, involve looking at 19, you know, replays of the guys like snapping back, but it's also not just cutting away and using a time that a guy is lying on the ground screaming to just get in our commercial inventory, right? There just has to be, there's somebody, somebody should think about that. And I don't know that they've really thought about it all that much.
1: And as callous as I might sound in my approach, I don't think that there shouldn't be rules to protect these guys though. I'm not saying that, you know, like I, I don't. Like I don't have a problem with the with the protocols they have set up. And I do get frustrated sometimes on Twitter too, because like, we were talking about how about the diagnoses that everyone wants to make from their couch or from the booth or from wherever. You know, you'll see a play and everyone is like, well, that's a concussion. This league's a joke. Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? It's like, well, okay, yeah, there's examples like you mentioned in the article where teams get in trouble for, like, I think it was Russell Wilson with had a, f- a fake protocol or whatever, and the league punished the team for <laughs> the team punished him for that. But the but most that was of the
3: pretty, that was pretty ridiculous, brutal, was pretty yeah,
1: brutal. And I, I think the Panthers, I don't think they got in trouble, but I think they should have last year in the playoff game against the Saints, uh, where Cam Newton clearly had a triple head bounce off the uh, off the turf, mm-hmm. stood up, went down to his knee, which is supposed to be when you start getting up and then go down. Supposed to automatically trigger a uh, review and somehow they talked their way out of him being, you know, checked. He went, you know, he went right back in the next series. He didn't get checked or whatever. And I think that it was, look at this is the playoffs and he says he's okay. You know, I think it was one of those things. So I think the league does need to make a decision. Like I don't have a problem with the rules being in place and I think they should be but I think we definitely need to get to a point two things one where it's consistent and two where um, we accept the uh the results because you know because it's like all right just because it looks like he had a concussion doesn't mean he did you know sometimes you get checked and you don't have one you know I feel like there's this like uh-huh. I feel like there's this desire for whatever reason that anytime someone does get hit that the reaction needs to be, oh, well, we got to go into like grandma protection mode here. It's like, if if yeah, he goes through, think, if he goes through the tests and he has one, then he's out for the day, and he goes through the rules to try to get back. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Let's just move on. So yeah, I, I
3: think it's I mean, it's like it's the Tom Savage thing, right? And it's the Case Keenum thing that the people are just. I think the, I think those examples were so just mind blowing to people that those guys you know, we're just like kind of picked up. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah, No. And I get that. Yeah. In the
3: game that it was just like, now it's everybody. But look, I, I I think if if you, if you, if you think the protocol is, if you think the the guys on the sidelines are working and the protocol is working, right. Then you should be like, okay, we want the guy to go in there and get checked out. And if he passes this test, then, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not for diagnosing from the booth and certainly not from, from the couch.
1: I I I totally agree think. totally agree and, and and i think you know i was a little a little hard on uh nowitzki and and like i he made fair points in the column you know i i was a, i was a, i cringed a couple of times when it's like don't say this word or don't say that word it's like you know like do we really need to have a pc way to describe a head injury too like wh- like why why is it that big of a deal if he says he got his belt wrong? Like why is it a problem to describe it that way? That's not that doesn't sound serious enough. Is that the issue?
3: Well, it's just it's just that we that was used as a way in the old days of saying that a concussion that a brain injury or a concussion just wasn't that serious. You know, it was like like you know. Like you're in like you're Bugs Bunny in a cartoon, and you see stars, and then you know a minute later you're running, you're okay, and you're running down the field or something like that. That when these things happen, we should the players should go into the protocol, and they should be checked out, or they should not be rushed back to practice, that kind of thing. Just to understand that bell rung just seems like it it makes it sound like it's like it's a silly thing that you should bounce back from. Like I said, it makes you sound like a cartoon character.
1: I guess, but my counter to that would be. In the 90s, when I heard Bao rung, I didn't think that Bao rung was serious. But now I know what it means to have your Bao rung, and I know it's serious. Yeah.
3: I'm not sure. I think you and I are probably on the end of people who have read a lot about these things. Okay. And, you know, the big thing I think that the whiskey and people would tell you is, look, they just want to make sure that kids and parents who are watching uh, a nationally televised football game don't get wrong information. Uh, and if they, you know, as a family decide to play football at whatever level, I'm not sure what, I'm, I can't remember offhand with the whiskey's idea for football, is, but if, you know. I think it's parents, high school.
1: No tackle for yeah, high school, like I think, if, is his avocation.
3: But 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 again, they're not asking, you know, Al Michaels to stop Sunday Night Football and, and say that, right? Right. They just, want, they just want everybody to have the right information. he's like, this is what, like, when you get a concussion, you are injuring your brain, right? Now, maybe you say, okay, that's a risk. It's football. It's you know I understand blah, 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 but it's like that is actually what's happening here, right It's not you're not getting a being on the head or something like that like if <laughs> you are injuring your brain and if you injure your brain a bunch of times that could be really bad right So again I don't I don't think anybody wants you know I was talking to Bob Costas for that piece and one thing he told me and I didn't quote the piece he, he, None of these people are saying please sermonize. In the middle of a game, because nobody would listen. Did the other thing, by the way. It's not only would that just be weird in the middle of the game. Nobody, they wouldn't convince anybody. You know, Al Michaels, if he started doing that in the middle of the first quarter of Sunday Night football, nobody's gonna be like, you know what? Let's let's not let Johnny play football this year. <laughs> That's not gonna happen. Right. I'm just talking about little stuff, describing it accurately, that kind of
1: stuff. I think Costas even made that point about, you know, he said something like when they were saying he shouldn't maybe shouldn't cover the Super Bowl that. He was like annoyed by it but agreed with it at the same time that mm-hmm. you know i thought that was kind of interesting um i don't
3: even think he was annoyed by it i think he just said you're right you know i'm just not i don't feel a hundred percent into football at this point in my life and somebody else should do it and look there are plenty of other people who want to do it so.
1: yeah i'm try- I was just gonna try to find the quote um but that's gonna be probably too hard without us sounding like dope's um. <laughs> Costas continues he, he said,
3: "Not only do I not have a problem with it, I agree with it." Something of that nature
1: Okay, I knew he said he agreed with it. I thought he said before that that he um, he was maybe he meant that he was just mad at football a little yeah. bit. I don't know.
3: Well, if I can, char- well, if I can characterize his emotions, he was. He definitely was not annoyed.
1: Let's do one more, and I'll let you go. Um you and David talk a lot on your podcast about politics, and sure. um, we just had the midterms, um, and you wrote a pretty interesting column, I think, about how the midterms, the the, the midterms kind of reminded me of uh, a Super Bowl that ends up not being that good, where it's this two weeks of this like <laughs> like insane hype, so much hype, and then the game yeah. comes and it's like. Oh, the team that was favored by ten, one by fifteen. Okay, right. You know, like nothing,
3: and, not, and nothing, and nothing. All that surprising happened. Right? No, like, did win or something. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like I, you know, I, I know for a fact that I'm a lot more conservative than you and David are, and that's fine. Uh, I definitely lean more right than uh, than you guys, and that's totally cool. And But, you know, like going into it, I was like, so the Democrats are going to win the House, Republicans are probably going to keep the Senate, and uh, we'll move on with our lives. <laughs> like, I, like, I don't know. It's just exactly what I thought would happen happened. And mm-hmm. I thought you just made a really good point in the column kind of talking about the hype of this and how it's kind of gotten out of control. I wanted to read you something that you wrote in here. That I thought was really interesting, um, and how it really frustrates me. Uh, okay, so you, it says here, as the New York Times, John, is it Coblin, noted Coblin, yes, Coblin. Okay, uh, the networks briefly became a Democratic funeral parlour. How, how, how is it? How is that possible? Why is that? Why does that happen? Why are we not better than that? <laughs> I don't, if you take take the word Democrat and turn to Republican, and I'm just as frustrated. Why right. is I, the I, ne- why are the networks not politically neutral? Why how do we I, let them become a funeral parlor? Because he's dead on. I totally I, I would, agree with him.
2: <laughs>
3: I would I would just say that I think in this case, and, and maybe that's just my sloppy writing, but I just meant they suddenly got very down on the Democratic chances to win the House. MSNBC may have had some general parlor overtones, but I think mostly they just hit this point where all of a sudden, just because of, kind of the way the returns were coming in, all these guys, and I don't know if they were getting word from the, their number crunchers or what. They just certainly be like, well, you know, things aren't looking very good. Democrats really, I hope this would be a big night and things aren't looking good. And then all of a sudden, we just wait a couple hours or actually in that case, wait like 30 minutes and now the Democrats are on track to pick up high 30s seats in the House, right? Just a huge number of seats, even in a midterm. And I'm like, wait, why did we do that? <laughs> why, why did we have – forget even the political bias. Why did we even just have that moment on television? Why did we need to know that? You know, It's like this, this actually didn't make any difference. And by the way, i say that for the other thing. The Beto, the Beto stuff, people are on TV going, oh, my gosh. Beto and Ted Cruz are only separated by 500 votes. Well, that was just right. a completely arbitrary percentage <laughs> of the vote, right? And then right? he won by if like a look, couple
1: hundred thousand. Yeah,
3: yeah, that'd be like if I was watching the Saints, uh, you know, versus let's put, who's the worst team? In the league, Jets, uh, Bills, or the Saints and, and the, were, the Bengals like, is
1: seven-seven at one point, right? And the Saints won yeah, fifty but to.
3: I'm like, oh my gosh, they're they're they're, they're completely tied. Looks well, like well, yeah, that's we do play four quarter football games. And you have no, any in the case of like Beto and Ted Cruz, you have no idea where those votes are coming from. Right. Like we could have had all the city and urban and border votes for Beto are already in. And in fact, you know, Ted Cruz is going to win handily because of and in fact, they did call the race for Cruz pretty quickly afterwards. I just think we live in this funny media world and and I'm a part of it um, where everything is kind of gets made into a television, a Twitter and television show. Mm -hmm. And we try to take things, um, and find all these little subplots in them. You even see with the Oscars, you know, people start freaking out, like, oh, this movie isn't winning any Oscars. And it's just because the order of the awards are given. <laughs> right,
2: right. And it's like,
3: if you just if you just came to me the next morning, I'd look at it and say, oh, that movie was a big winner. I'd say, "Well, you know, for two hours and 45 minutes, it was completely shut out. I'd say, well, that doesn't mean anything. That's just the order that he gave them now. And maybe they had two songs in there, which made it even longer. I don't know. No, um,
1: that's a good point. No, it's a really I, I good point.
3: This, dude, I noticed this with the NBA draft. You know, there's all this, like, you know, first of all, we freak out when a player is taken, and it turns out six picks later, the team is just trading him anyway. Um, we know all these rumors, I mean, Woj, you know, from Woj, from Sham, so we're all like, oh, my gosh, every pick is in. And, in fact, we're just, all we're doing is taking an event that isn't really that spectacular and interesting and just trying to juice it up with all these things. And I just felt the same way about Election Day.
1: Yeah, and I, the column I thought was really good. You know, I want to be clear here, like, I'm not a Trump guy at all. Didn't vote for him. I wrote in Kasich. Um, I think his rhetoric, like as a human being, he's as bad as it gets. You know, his rhetoric is horrible. I wish he never tweeted ever again. You know, he he proves over and over again he has doesn't care about anything but himself. Sometimes you know, like it's just brute. He's brutal. You know, but his administration is governed pretty conservatively. I haven't been completely dissatisfied with how the country's been governed because I don't think he does much other than talk, you know. And we, I think we've seen glimpses in in, in, in different books, people saying the way this administration works is people doing everything around Trump and Trump just kind of talking, you know. But um, and I don't like, I hate the phrase "the enemy of the people." I think that's, I think it's bad rhetoric. But the problem is he's not totally wrong about. The underlying point that you know, if you take Fox out of the equation, um, because they're only one of several, the media has become. And you can tell me if I'm wrong. If I'm being, you can tell me if you think I'm being, if I'm getting caught in a Repub- uh, you know a Republican conservative echo chamber or something. But it just always feels so left and liberally driven and unfair and you know like a good example i'm gonna try to give an example i don't know if this is a good one but it's just an example uh the gun controls debate uh, i remember there was there was um uh, one of the tragedies happened and for a whole day all you heard on tv was we should try something let's just try something we haven't tried something let's do something why don't we do something and the next day trump came out and he had an idea and his idea was like wasn't the best idea. wasn't a good – I don't think it was a good one. I think he said like we should arm teachers maybe or something or we should allow teachers to go through training or whatever. And then the the next day it switched to what a horrible idea it was and how horrible he is and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, yesterday you said something. So he came up with something. Like maybe it's not the best something but why don't we build from there? Well, no, maybe not. The teachers aren't a good – it's like I don't know. I'm rambling now. But I'm sure you get my main point. And and maybe I took uh, John out of context a little bit. Maybe he was talking about something else, uh, and I was focusing more on the faces. And certainly, if you watch two thousand sixteen, I mean, you, oh, yeah. you can't even deny that. You you can't deny that one. I mean,
3: yeah. I mean, I think I just want. I just
1: want. Some... A, I just want a media I know is just just tell me the facts. Like, because I'm not unreasonable. I'm not. I I'm not a hundred percent in any direction. Just tell me the facts. Like, why does it have to feel so biased? I don't watch Fox for the same reason. I don't believe anything they say either. How did we get here? Brian?
3: I just think, well, I mean, I'm somebody's been in this for almost actually, or not almost. almost, Yeah. Almost 20 years now. Um, You know, I've never looked around me in a newsroom and said, Oh, I'm I'm by conservatives. Right. It's always, it's always left leading people. Not not totally without conservatives and libertarians. They've been in newsrooms I've been in too. Um, you know, we can say something about the fact that just certain kinds of people with certain kinds of values are attracted to the idea of being reporters, right? We're talking about news reporters here, right? Media means a lot of can mean a lot of different things. We're talking about like news reporters, Right. comment on politics, Yeah, we're not
1: talking about commentators. We're talking about, you know people whose job at Like we we both went to school and, and sat in media ethics class, right, at some point and and I learned that, you know,
3: not 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 me but okay, yeah, well I did.
1: And and the first thing they teach you is that you're 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 there to not be your opinion doesn't matter. You you're just there to report the facts. Like that's what your job is, you know. And like
3: I just think I just think, you know, in the, in on you know, issues like gun control, we could name abortion, we could name a lot of
1: things. I think you'd find
3: um, within the media that there'd be a lot of the, you know, if we took a poll, the consensus would be very heavily on the Democratic side. Just in the individual beliefs of the reporters, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, like there'd be all like reporters. I I would guess, but I'm not looking at the survey data. Would be highly pro-choice. Would be highly pro- pro-gun control. Things like that. I mean, totally, absolutely right. What I always find strange about this, that when we when I talk about this, is like it's been a conservative. This has been a conservative issue going back to Nixon and probably beyond. Right? The, the media is a lefty, and they're and they're out to get us, and they're biased. But whenever conservatives have attempted to build their own institution, and like in the case of Fox News, it turns out to be even more cartoonish.
1: Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> the, yeah, it's it, 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 Fox News is it, brutal.
3: It, it, it turns to be what what they're saying the quote unquote liberal media is is actually what Fox is, right? Sean Hannity is on the stage with Donald Trump.
1: <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> you know, that
3: doesn't that doesn't happen on MSNBC. It couldn't happen. It doesn't happen on CNN. Like whatever you say about those networks, and I you could say whatever you want because it wouldn't would offend me. I just am like, it, that would never happen, ever, ever. You know, uh, the person would be fired. You'd have to be like, I don't know if you, a you, you look at happen.
1: you look at the interactions that um, what's his name had it with Obama. I mean, it's pretty close. What the uh, the guy from CNN, what's his name? Lemon, Is his name Don Lemon. Am I thinking of the right guy?
3: He didn't, he didn't, but he didn't, I know he didn't campaign, but
1: I mean, come on. That's
3: a, that's a big, that's a big difference. That's a big, it's a big difference. And also, but also Hannity,
1: Hannity's a comment, Hannity's a commentator, right?
3: It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Campaigning with the person? So is Rachel Maddow. She campaigning with Obama?
1: No, but if she, but I know where she, Maddow and, and and Hannity are examples of people. I know exactly where they stand.
3: Judge Janine, you know, like I mean, it's like there's a lot of people like that on. Like I said, it's, I'm not Fox advocating Fox.
1: for Fox. Fox is just as bad, it's, or can I, can even I if you want to say, would say, say would. worse, even if you want to say worse, fine.
0: Here's
3: here's by the way what I I would I, I, I always retreat to this position because I can't agree. I just find cable news to be generally terrible. That sucks. Right now. Yeah, it sucks. I can't watch CNN. I was saying this to David on the pod the other day. Has, because, they, because they're because they trying not to be left or right, they're just kind of like, we're the noisy truth seekers in the middle. And I actually find that affect really annoying. Um, I like certain people on CNN, but I just find like the, the Chris Cuomo, I just can't, I can't watch that. So I have found myself retreating to print newspapers and on my serious radio, the BBC world, because it's just like, it's just, like, non-hysterical commentary. And and I and I feel so much, when I do that, I feel so much better. I actually watched cable on election night. It was the first time I'd watched more than, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of cable not for work in a long time. And I found it really, really, really hard to watch. And I found after, like, 30 or 40 minutes, I just it was very, very hard for me to take because it was so phony and it was so... The affect of it was so... T V, you know? Right. And I just like I just can't watch this. And so I've retreated, I've retreated to, to print and and Britain. That's <laughs> the places I go for my news. I and remember, I find myself I'm so much happier.
1: I remember in two thousand four Pearl Jam played this vote for change tour, which I you know, mm-hmm. I always look back and think it's a big reason why Bush won. I, you know, I really think that I really think Republicans benefit more from the uh the celebrities. Uh, than the Democrats do. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I don't, yes, have any, actually, I don't have any data for that. That's just know, a feeling.
3: <laughs> but you know what? This election might have actually been that theory in reverse, right? Because there were certain parts of the country, right, where Trump came to, and it turned out a bunch of Democratic voters, you know, like, right. more than normal because mm-hmm. people are kind of like, he's kind of the celebrity, right? right. He's yeah. like a conservative celebrity.
1: Mm-hmm. No, you're right about that. They, that was in your article, too. I thought that was a really good point. Uh But what I remember most about – because I went to two of those shows. I went to the one in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan and one in Toledo, Ohio. And I remember in Grand Rapids, Michigan, there was a pretty big line waiting to get in. And um, the people behind me were spending their time in line, uh, mostly complaining about Fox News. And I remember at some point just turning to them and saying, like, well, what about every other outlet? Like, so let's – like, so if Fox News sucks because it's too right, I'll concede that. like that's one of how many, right? like so like, why can't we just instead of complaining about Fox News, like I think what we need to do as a as a electorate as a is say they all suck and demand better of all of them like like let's talk about the Acosta thing real quick and I'll let you go. Um, sure. he didn't hit a g- girl or anything like he didn't, you know, his little swat away of what, no big, you know, no big deal. Right. Like whatever. That was, that was, up. right. That really was not,
3: yeah, that
1: was. It, it was a silly thing to focus on because why not just focus on the way he's behaving? Why, why would we ever let anyone behave like that? Why, how, you said you didn't go to media ethics class. I, I did like, what where in the world does he think it's appropriate to just he asked his question, he got an answer. Okay, next person's turn. And when like why does he think it's okay to stand there and just filibuster and scream with even without the mic or demand the mic or whatever. Like what like his behavior in general is like awful. Like I don't I don't know if I think he should be banned or whatever, like, or get his stuff taken away, maybe, but, like, you can't, like, why can he, why does he think he can act like that? Why do we put up with that? I don't care what well, side he's on. I definitely, I definitely
3: don't think he should be banned, because.
1: No, like, I mean, it's just not. a bad I mean, precedent, right? It's a bad precedent, yeah, anyway. Well, it's,
3: just, it's just bad, bad. You yeah,
1: know? It's just, you but. Should, Maybe you know, there's got to be and, some rules. And the, rules, thing, is, though, and the right?
3: thing is, and there's something which, and there's something. Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there, there. I think there are rules of decorum and stuff like that. but the thing about Trump is, Trump called on him, right?
1: Right. Trump, and, he, and he let him talk. We know, we know talk. about
3: Trump. Trump kind of there's something about Trump that likes negative press, right? And or at least likes having the media as a kind of foil to him. Oh yeah. You know. So. Oh yeah. And with, whether Trump was expecting to take the hard pass away from him or not. Um, he definitely was calling on him because he was looking forward to combat right he's looking for he knows that half the people in that room is going to be combat not quite as grandstanding but but trump is I, I i mean i say about acosta just aside from the whole recent thing um i he's not my style and again that's part of what i was saying about cnn i just don't i do not like the aspect of crazy grandstanding noisy true seeker that has centrist truth-seeker that has dominated the network, that's not. That's just not for me. I don't like watching that on television, particularly. Um, I do think it's a weird time to be a reporter because of what you talked about earlier, Trump calling the journalist the enemy of the American people.
1: Yeah, it's horrible right uh, Encouraging horrible.
3: Encouraging people to boo them at rallies,
1: dumb. right? Yeah, dumb.
3: You know, yeah. encouraging his crowds to... And and I'm not saying that that makes reporters do anything, but I just think it puts everybody in a very, very weird mindset. You know, if Obama had done that, but look at that Fox News person. Boo him. Boo him. He's your enemy. You know, people, uh, Fox News reporters would have have been a really weird situation for them, right? I mean, it would have been... Well, he did kick the one guy out the
1: one time, humiliate the one guy.
3: Totally. Oh, totally. And and, and, and that was
1: stupid. Yeah.
3: But I'm just like, if there had been like this visceral tweeting about them, threatening them, yelling at them.
1: I just think there's a... Well, one thing that that you can't argue is that the decorum and poise and humanity of Obama clearly trumps that of Trump. I mean, you know, like, I don't care about, like, politics aside, like I said, every time this guy opens his mouth, I cringe, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, it's, it's exhausting. You know, I always say, like, I think the best thing he's like his best quality for for him is that he somehow knows how to make everything about him like you know like you can mm-hmm. be you could be anywhere anytime and somehow it's about him you know and i i was trying that's, to...
3: that's certainly his most effective quality yeah, yeah
1: it, he's amazing at it right like he can turn the tiddlywinks finals and grand rapids into the, something about him somehow you know like it's like this interview is somehow How about him t-
3: tweeting and tweeting about the way Dave Roberts was using his relievers. I mean, I was like
1: the world I mean, series. Yeah. The really world blood. series about Donald Trump somehow, you know, it's like,
3: and we, it, we just kind of completely, we'd completely forgotten about him for like two minutes. So, and then all of a sudden here comes the tweet and you're just like, wait,
1: what? And, and you know, you know, what's too bad about that is like, I liked listening to Obama talk about sports sometimes. I wish I would mm-hmm. want to hear Trump talk about sports, but I don't want to hear him talk about anything because I'm so exhausted by him. You know what I mean? Like it's like, uh, yeah. you know, like that, if, if, if four, five years ago, you know, Obama would have thrown that out. I would have thought that was cool. Like, oh wow. The president's chilling at the white house watching the world series. Like I am like, wow. I like that quality about him. You know, like when he would do his bracket, I have no desire mm-hmm. to see Trump do a bracket because I just don't know. I don't want to know anything else about him. I, I, I'm good. Like I'm good with him, you know. Like, so anyway, that's so that's, yeah, Look at he that's just did it to so us, incredible. right? I mean, that's what's so, he just dragged us definitely. down, and
3: that's what's so incredible. And honestly, like it's just this period of American life. This is the most nonpartisan thing I can say. It's just un frickin believable, and even you know that whole thing with the cost and stuff. It was in the middle of the president giving a 90 minute freeform press conference where he would literally take any question or just about any question. And you're just like, what? Wait, <laughs> like, I just can't. I was watching that, or I think I was actually listening to part of it on the radio on the way home, and I was like, I can't believe this is happening. I just can't believe this is live happening. On
1: I'm television. sure everyone around him couldn't believe it either. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because I mean, everything you read is like they try so hard to keep him on script because they're so petrified every time he. And like the most part, the most partisan thing I'll say, you said some non-partisan. I'll say something partisan. He really blew it because, when you know, if you go back to 2015, that first debate, there was 17 guys, I think, or 16 guys. If I would have ranked him as a Republican, mm-hmm. he would have been 16 or 17, however many. He would have been the, my last choice for sure. And the reason for that is because look at what he just blew. He had the presidency, the Congress, both houses, Senate and the House for two years, and he got one thing done in a tax bill. Pretty much it. Right. Yeah. Why are you going to have that opportunity again? You know, I just cringe. Like, if it was someone more politically savvy, like, healthcare needs to be fixed. But nobody wanted to listen to a thing he said about it. And that's a total Republican failure anyway because they had eight years to come up with a good plan. And clearly they didn't have one, you know. But that, like they should have been ready to fix that. Like, it just feels like a blown chance. Like how often do you get two years of that? Not often. I guess he got two Supreme court justices too. Two Supreme court justices and a tax bill is basically what he got out of it. I think, and I just think he, he conducted, he conducted
3: as he conducts all things, just like exactly like he wants to, right? He's doing exactly what he wants to. Nobody is, (laughs) nobody is interfering with him. You know,
2: it's brutal. different.
1: All right. Well, let me uh, sell, s- uh, sell some stuff here. The com is where you go. Brian uh, works there. And, of course, he has uh, the Press Box podcast, which is on Channel 33, if you search that on Apple Podcasts. And you can find Brian on Twitter. You changed it on me. It used to be Curtis Beast. What did you change it to?
3: Yeah, we've
1: got uh, at Brian Curtis. At Brian Curtis. Okay. So you made it even easier. Brian with a Y. Brian that's with that's a Y. Anything else you want to plug?
3: No, I think that's about it.
1: Thanks for all the time. Sorry, we got down into sports. some kind of crazy box hole there the last no, few next minutes.
3: Next time we'll talk about something totally uncontroversial like Big Twelve football.
1: Yeah, that was more fun. The first twenty minutes we're doing this fun stuff, and the last <laughs> for sports announcers. The amazing thing, which I think, the last twenty minutes proved, is everyone's just fresh. Like we we're on potentially opposite sides who knows how far apart we really are we'd have to really sit down and talk about it my guess is probably closer than we would think but um everyone's just pissed right i mean that's all who's happy
3: there right. is there is an incredible shared level of disillusionment frustration
1: exhaustion and mostly
3: just exhaustion yeah yeah that's exactly what i was gonna say dude
1: all right buddy well be well be best to your family and uh have a great thanksgiving And uh, we'll do this again uh, sooner than it was in between last time, if you're cool with that. It's a deal. I want to thank Brian Curtis and John Feinstein for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can hear today's show and all of our shows on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. There's episodes dating back all the way to 2011 on that feed. Uh, Also, Adrian Dater and I put out a new episode, episode 26 of the Lonely End of the Rink podcast. It's just 55 or 60 minutes of NHL talk. And you can find that right on the Sportscasters feed uh, as well. You can also find the new Adams Division podcast with myself and Peter Winson on the Greetings from Allentown feed and uh, on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And you can find Peter Winson's new podcast about WWF from 1985 on TBS where Andre gets a haircut. And you can also uh, find that, like I said, Pro Wrestling Only and Greetings from Allentown feeds and if you want more information on the greetings from allentown podcast it's at gf allentown pod on twitter this podcast can be found at sports underscore casters on twitter and you can also email me the sportscasters at gmail.com and i'd love to hear from you one last piece of business today and that's one last thing and for one last thing today i thought it would be appropriate to tell you all the things i am thankful for this year On Thanksgiving and the first thing I want to say is I'm thankful for anyone who's listening to this look at this is a podcast I do in a spare bedroom in my house and it came at a time it started at a time in 2011 where I didn't have anything else Uh, my career had kind of been taken away from me because of Crohn's disease and I needed something that I could do at my own pace to keep busy and seven years later uh, without Don, with Don, with guests, it's still here, and look it, I know it doesn't have the listeners a Pardon the Take or the Bill Simmons Report or any of those podcasts, but I think we've done good work. I've done good work, something I'm proud of, and I want to thank anyone who listens. Uh, I'm thankful for you. Uh, I'm thankful for all the guests who come on this show, the Jane Levies, the Jeff Proman's, the... Friends I've made like Adrian Dater, someone who uh, I'll have his back forever, I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful I got to speak to legends like Frank DeFord, S.L. Price, Joe Buck, Artie Lang, Duff McKagan, Deuce McAllister, David Justice, John Smoltz, athletes, broadcasters, writers, entertainers, thankful to everyone who's ever come on. I'm thankful for Drew Brees. Oh my God, isn't he great? 29 touchdowns and 2 interceptions. I mean, he's a guy who's made all my sports dreams come through come true, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for Sean Payton, and I'm thankful the Saints, after absolutely crushing my soul in Minnesota last year, have put together such a fun season. I'm thankful for the Sabres at 15 wins. They didn't get 15 wins until February last year. I'm thankful for That Jack Eichel's a Sabre and Jeff Skinner's a Sabre and Rasmus Dahlin and Casey Middlestat and all these kids are in their young 20s and the window is just opening and Sabres hockey is going to be fun here for a long time. I'm really thankful for that. It's about time. You know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for one more thing about the Sabres. You know, back in 1999, uh, they were in the Stanley Cup Finals and before Game 1, uh we were going my friend Mike and I were going to go uh to watch them play at this girl's house that he wanted to uh try to hook up with, but her boyfriend showed up, so we left and we went to the uh arena and I met this girl there, and in two thousand and fourteen I married her and in two thousand and sixteen we had a child, and we have a beautiful family, and I couldn't be more thankful for that. you know, I'm not the easiest person. Believe it or not, to be around all the time. You know, I can be difficult. I can be moody, and I, I know that. And I try my best not to 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 project that on the people that I love. Uh, but if anyone knows Tammy and everything that I've been through, you know that she's always been there for me uh, through really through sickness and in health. She's really taken that part seriously, and I'm grateful for that. Um, And I couldn't be more thankful for the family that I have. You know, being a father, a young father to a young daughter, I'm so thankful that I get to spend every day with her, get to wake up next to her and see her smile and give her kisses and tell her how much I love her and teach her about the A-Team and Pearl Jam and try to teach her cool shit. But still let her be an independent little two year old and take her to hockey. And I'm thankful that my dad is retired now and gets to meet us there every week. You know, I'm thankful for my parents, my mom and my dad, my stepfather. I'm thankful for my brothers. My brother Greg's been helping me with this part of the podcast and making sure, you know, that I'm striking the right balance between personal and real, but don't want to bum anyone out, but wanna be open. And I'm super thankful. My brother Greg's been there to help me with that. And, uh, you know, I'm really thankful for my brother Anthony and everything he's ever done for me. It's great to have two brothers. It's great to have them in Buffalo. I'm thankful for that. We can make dinner plans or meet for a Sabres game. We can do whatever. It's not like it was for so long when Anthony was playing hockey and he was in Sioux Falls or wherever he was. You know, Yale. Um but I'm really thankful for those guys. am thankful for my dog Colston. He's a good little boy. He's always running around in here. Seven years old now. He's been a loyal friend. He's a great big brother. Takes care of my girl Paula. You know. So that's really good. And. Uh, I'm thankful I still have a grandmother alive. My grandma Marie. Um, she made thanksgiving dinner yesterday and got to spend some time with her and and be with her and you know i realized i take her for granted i wish i didn't do that you know you just have this sense she's always going to be there but i mean i know that's not true because everyone else all my other grandparents passed away so hopefully i can do better about taking advantage of the time that we have um paula is paula marie and she's marie um so I'm just so thankful for her to still have her around. So lucky to still at thirty eight years old have a grandparent on this earth to talk to. And I'm so glad that she got to see Paula. because uh, of course my grandma Paula didn't. Um so I'm really thankful for that. You know. I'm really thankful for the house I live in, like a beautiful house. We built it in two thousand and ten. And um it's not the biggest house in the world, but it's the right size for us. I love living here, waking up here every day. And I'm thankful for my health. You know, I think that should be said. It's it's not the best health in the league. You know, I know others have better, but... You know, even when I'm... Even when I'm sick... You know, I I think I realize that... There's other people out there who... They have it worse than me. And I know there's this, like, old cliche. It says that, you know... God never gives us more than we can handle and I don't know you know about religion or whatever but I think there's some truth in that that you know despite being through a lot since 2003 I kind of always been able to handle it and take it in stride and I know in October I didn't have the best month and I don't know even if what happened in October the blockage I had and and draining it if that's going to hold up But today I feel good, and uh, I'm really thankful for that. And I'm thankful for every time I went to the hospital, I managed to walk out. It's been a great year. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.